The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, a stroll down memory lane. In the past 12 months, we've released more than 50 episodes of this show, 50 episodes. Could you believe it? We've covered everything from neuroscience to ancient history. We've asked bold and impertinent questions, questions like, does laziness exist? And are we all living in a simulation? We've even talked about getting addicted to romance novels. It's a huge range, I know, but that's kind of the mission of the show and of the Next Big Idea Club more broadly. We're trying to map the world of ideas by bringing you engaging, surprising, and hopefully timely and insightful conversations with the writers and thinkers whose ideas are most profoundly impacting the way we live and the way we work, and the ways we understand ourselves and move through the world. These are extraordinary times. The pace of technology and scientific and political change is disorienting to many of us, sometimes exciting, sometimes daunting. I, for one, at the tender age of 54, I'm still trying to figure out the world. Our producer Caleb, on the other hand, a precocious polymath who was the wizard behind the curtains over here, merely 30 years old, Caleb has it all figured out. Don't you, Caleb? That's very nice of you to say. Um, You know, the thing is, you pay me to read all these books and learn all these things. So I think, you know, I have the inside edge. That you do. Caleb is joining me on mic today so we can try something we've never done before. That's right. We're going to be listening back to some of our favorite moments from the dozens of conversations Rufus had this year. You can think of it as a highlight reel. Or maybe a greatest hits album. These are the moments that made us laugh. That gave us goosebumps. That caused us to sit up in our chairs. These are the moments that changed, sometimes in small ways, the way we see the world. They might just have the same effect on you. I'd like to think this thing we're doing, Caleb, with this podcast adds up to more than the sum of its parts. I'd like to think that we're collectively building some kind of knowledge together, right? In theory, that these conversations like build on each other. And I think this special episode may be a way to reflect back on some of our learnings from the last year and how they inform each other. This is what coders, Caleb, would call refactoring. So I know you just referred to me as a precocious polymath, but I do not really know anything about coding. I'm not a tech geek. So so explain that to us. What What's refractoring? I'm really delighted to hear about all the gaps in your knowledge, Caleb. <laughs> when you're designing a piece of software, you have to periodically go back and refactor your existing lines of code, restructure them, clean them up. And that's kind of what we're doing today. Yeah. No, that's a really, really cool way to put it. Um. All right, so where do you want to start? You know, one thing our best episodes all have in common is that they're all conversations. Now, this may sound kind of obvious since this is an interview show, but something that's come up again and again is how remarkable and useful and beautiful it is 
that we humans can talk to one another. One of the things that that you you realize, you know, in the stuff that I've written about over the last 20 years is that our brains are pretty freaking amazing. That's our curator, Dan Pink, speaking with Rufus just a few weeks ago. It's kind of amazing what human beings can do with this three-pound thing inside of our head. I mean, even to some extent, Rufus, what, what you and I are doing right now, like I'm making sounds out of a hole in my mouth. And, <laughs> and but, but what's that, what that's doing is, is that that's conveying these complex ideas from my head into your head. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. That clip actually reminds me of something I learned from John Calapinto, who we had on the show to talk about his book, This is the Voice. It was a book about the astonishing power and subtlety of the human voice. John said something that I found to be absolutely astonishing. The fastest a human brain can respond to a statement is in 600 milliseconds, which is a little over half a second. And yet the average gap between statements in a conversation is 200 milliseconds. Wild. So we're all preparing to speak, Caleb, well before the other person finishes talking. It's a beautiful thing. And you know what I, I compare it to in my own mind, and I probably should have put this in the book, is if you've ever, if you play tennis at all, or if you're throwing a ball with a friend, a football, mm, yeah. you start moving to where that ball is going sometimes before it's fully left your friend's hand. And mm -hmm, it's because you are able to read through repetitive throwing and catching. You're, you're getting picking up all these visual cues and clues as to what the trajectory of that ball will be. And as it leaves the hand, well, by then you really are starting to know. You know what speed it's coming at. You know what its arc is going to be. And I mean, it's really why we're able to fluidly play catch. It's why we're able to fluidly play tennis. It's all about the anticipation. And I now wish that I'd actually put that in the book because really our, our, the phrases that we speak to people in conversation have arcs and trajectories that are very, very similar to throwing a ball back and forth. You know, you and I are both very, very good at knowing, you know, as the ball is arcing down towards us when it is we should start gearing up to speak. And it's really how we're able to drop in our reply within 200 milliseconds. It really should take 600 for us to get that all figured. But instead, we're ready before the other person has stopped speaking. And it's a remarkable aspect of our back and forth conversation. And in fact, really good conversation sounds like an unbroken ribbon of sound. Mm. It's almost as if it's yeah. one voice speaking. But hopefully, in this exchange of ideas, we're actually listening, changing each other's minds, as you put it, an exchange of musically orchestrated ideas. Absolutely. I mean, there's been, I, I wish I, my memory was better, but there's been a couple of times literally in the, in the conversation we are now having where you've actually spurred uh, and, and you've triggered like a new idea in me about this thing that I spent three and a half years thinking about. And I mean, my God, how critical is that? I mean, our species clearly uh, use this to really great effect because no other animal species does it. We don't just trade back and forth the idea that we're you know, wanting someone to get off our territory by barking at them. We have this astonishing way to create ideas. I mean, we are a remarkable species, but, but really what makes us so special is that we're able to, to say stuff to each other. You know, I love that notion that what makes us human, it's not that we have opposable thumbs or that we walk upright on two legs, but it's that we can create ideas by talking with each other. 
I mean, I'm still impressed by the walking on two legs stuff. And the, but nonetheless, this came up again in an interview I did with the science writer, Annie Murphy-Paul. She made this really intriguing point that if you look at all the logical fallacies from which we humans suffer, you might conclude that our brains are just faulty, deficient. But when we speak to each other, when we debate and discuss, we correct those errors and collectively we think better. The brain's so extraordinary, it's so amazing, but wait, you know, it's, it's so also so flawed and it, and it fails so often. So how do we explain that? And Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, who are both cognitive scientists, they say, well, it's because we're using our faculties of reason in context in which they never evolved to be used. They evolved to be used in social settings in which we are picking apart the arguments of others and doing our very best to defend our own arguments and put the best version we can come up with of our argument out there to others. And so we're actually quite good at, at uh, finding the flaws in other people's arguments, but we can at the same time be very blind to the flaws in our own arguments. So the way to get around the way that our faculty of reasoning has evolved is to use it in the context in which it originally was intended, which is a social context. And, you know, we all know that, um, you know, arguing and debating doesn't always lead to better solutions, but it can if people come into it with the shared goal of getting as close as possible to the truth and practicing the method of making their own best argument, but keeping their minds open to hearing a critique of that argument from other people. And that is the strategy by which we can best make use of our evolved reasoning faculty. So, so one last thing I'd say about this is, you know, yes, conversation's remarkable, it's musical, it's a great tool, as Annie just said, for finding the flaws in our arguments and generating new ideas. But, you know, you know having a good conversation is just also a lot of fun, right? So much fun. Like we have a lot of fun, the two of us having conversations as we make the show. And yes, I have a ton of fun listening to the conversations you have on the show. That brings up a really important point, just the idea that conversations can be fun. So that's tape from a chat you had with Catherine Price uh, earlier this season. Catherine wrote a really charming book and profound, too, called The Power of Fun. It's all about why we need to be having more fun in our lives. But a really specific kind of fun. Many of us assume that having fun is something that happens when we're not in our normal lives. And one thing that was really useful to me personally as I wrote this book was this realization that, no, actually, if you define it as playful, connected flow, you actually probably are having many more moments of it than you realize. Because suddenly, yes. any conversation yeah. that was playful that you enjoyed, you suddenly reframe as, oh, wait, that actually was fun. Like, I had fun. And that helps you to appreciate and benefit. But it also opens up the possibility of having fun in places you wouldn't expect it, of generating opportunities for fun. She said it kind of quickly in that clip, but I think Catherine's definition of fun is worth repeating because it's definitely something that has stuck with me since we spoke. She defines fun as playful, connected flow. To be in flow state requires some degree of challenge. And this, of course, is built into conversation. For me, anyway, it's among the most difficult things we do. You know, you make it look pretty easy, Rufus. Well, I'm glad you've been hoodwinked. <laughs> uh, but it's not only difficult, but it's also among the most connected things that we do. Yeah. And we're doing it right. It's, it's playful. Catherine is quick to point out that fun is not an activity. It's a feeling. 
The feeling, she writes, of being fully present and engaged, free from self-criticism and judgment, it is the thrill of losing ourselves in what we're doing and not caring about the outcome. It is laughter. It is playful rebellion. It's euphoric connection. It's the bliss that comes from letting go. I love that. Me too. Which brings us to something else we learned this season. Feelings matter. It's even more than that, right? Feelings don't just matter. They're essential. This I have come to learn, Caleb, in the last few decades. It's <laughs> I should have learned it sooner, but uh, with the help of some of our extraordinary guests this year, the point has really struck home. You know, I've only had, what, 200 milliseconds to think about what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty sure I know which interview you're going to introduce next. I think you're headed towards Antonio Damasio. You guessed it. We spoke back in October, but I still have goosebumps thinking about it because Antonio Damasio is one of my intellectual heroes. He's among the most celebrated neuroscientists at work today, and he's written several brilliant books. The best known is probably Descartes' Error. I got to interview him about his latest, Feeling and Knowing. It's all about the origins of consciousness. So to set the mood, let's listen to a little bit of the introduction to this episode. Each week on the show, I talk with big thinkers whose ideas might just change the way you see the world. But we like to ease into it. How's the weather today? The weather, it's beautiful. Oh my gosh, Antonio, it's a perfect day. It's 73 degrees and I'm feeling homeostasis. Good, that's exactly the idea. Homeostasis, the body's silent striving for balance. The right temperature, the right pH, the right nutrient levels. It's a word I probably learned in high school biology but hadn't said out loud in quite some time until this conversation with Antonio Damasio. And the claim Damasio makes is that homeostasis isn't just what keeps us alive. It's actually what makes us feel. Exactly. He says that we can think of our feelings as sensory signals that tell us when our homeostasis gets out of whack. If your nutrient levels are off, Caleb, you feel hungry. You've had this experience. If your internal temperature drops, you feel cold. As it happens, our emotions use the same system of visceral homeostatic signals. So when you're afraid, your muscles tense. When you're pissed off, your heart speeds up. Our feelings, Antonio writes, are a musical score that accompanies our thoughts and actions. Another beautiful sentence. Learning to think about my feelings that way has, for me, had a really profound impact on how I understand my impulses and motivations. Here's how I explained it to Antonio. I sometimes get in a mental state, and I, I'm ashamed to say this, Antonio, where I get easily irritated by other people. But I've come to realize that when I get in that state, the only thing that makes me happy is focusing on my work. And I've come to interpret some of these mood shifts as a sign of the intelligence that is in my hybrid mind, both mind and body, mm. that is telling me, you know what, it's time to get to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And there are other very nuanced examples, such as like I might attend a dinner party and have a lovely evening, and I wake up the next morning and I feel a sense of, of embarrassment or shame in a very blurry sort of indistinct way, a visceral way, right? In the viscera. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I'll think back and realize, you know what? I made a comment that was not sensitive and I ignored this other friend and probably hurt their feelings. And so I have learned from this visceral response in my body, some intelligence about how I could improve my behavior. Absolutely. You are combining 
your intelligence, the intelligence that comes from your knowledge and your ability to reason with clarity, with the natural intelligence that uh, comes from your feelings, which is, of course, something that you have inherited from uh, evolution and that has, is there in this interplay between nervous system and the living body. And you're, you're using that older part as material for your rationality to operate and to give you new ideas about what you can do to help you make corrections in your life, in, in how you plan it, in how you run it. So I think that's exactly, uh, I'm very happy to hear you say that because that's the kind of blend, that's the kind of encompassing attitude that I think um, good minds have to have. And any kind of extreme where you try to get rid of either the rationality or the affective component uh, is not going to lead to a good result because it's incomplete. And nature has provided us with all these possibilities. So why not make the best use of them, which is what you're doing? I'm glad you brought Antonio into the mix because there's something the two of you discussed and you actually brought it up again later in the season with another guest and it just went completely over my head so let me play you a clip and then maybe you can dumb it down for me rufus you probably know about some work that we have done here yes. on a proposal uh, on to have artificial intelligence go soft so you know the idea that we could potentially make robots more clever if we use soft robotics and if they were, if paradoxically we would introduce vulnerability where right now we have complete solidity and impermeable structures. And that goes exactly to the point that you're making. There's something about us that is related to the qualities and to the softness and the vulnerability that is, of course, inconvenient because, of course, you can get sick and die. Uh, but at the same time, it also produces this amazing intelligence. And guess what? We are intelligent in our human way because we are conscious. And we are conscious because we are vulnerable. Because if that came from feelings, that is our great armament against that vulnerability. And so your paper, I think, was titled Homeostasis and Soft Robotics in the Design of Feeling Machines. And, Correct. And so is this proposal to actually help people build machines that can feel? And do you think that if that is successful over time, might that lead to helping uh, computer AI attain consciousness through a, the building of a feeling machine? Theoretically, yes to all your questions, but one has to be very prudent and very modest. The, the idea, you know, we, we're not thinking that a robot e equipped with some sensors that would make it, quote-unquote, more in the direction of vulnerable would give it feeling in the proper sense. Uh, after all, we're dealing with a non-living device. So the possibility of it having feeling in the way that you and I have is, of course, zero. But it might give certain clues to that intelligence that would make it more uh, <laughs> cuddly and friendly in the sense that it might appear to behave more like we do. And potentially, that might be the source of new developments. Because there's no question that what artificial intelligence can do is spectacular, has been spectacular, but it's lacking something, which also is obvious. So that might be it. 
So help me out here, Rufus. Are you saying that the way to make artificial intelligence sentient is to teach computers how to feel? Yes, this anyway would be Damasio's thesis. Mm. I think the idea at the heart of Damasio's work is that the feeling of being inside your body, right? We take this for granted, but but yeah. but th- th- there's a it's not an accident that we have this feeling of being inside of our body, which is critical to the experience of consciousness. It's kind of the seat of consciousness. Mm. And this is the result of the evolution of an ancient sensory network, experiences of pain and pleasure that guided early organisms towards food and away from danger. And of course, vulnerability is critical to this evolution of feelings. So if we want sentient computers, and that's a big if, we will need to build in some form of physical vulnerability. Wild idea. Got it. Yeah, that is wild. That was also a really helpful definition. Thank you. And I should confess something, which is, as I mentioned, you you bring this idea up in another conversation we had with another titan of neuroscience, David Chalmers. and. I cut that exchange out of the episode because I just had no idea what you were talking about. You know, I always have blind faith in your edits, Caleb, but I'm, I'm now going to have to rethink that a little bit because now I realize sometimes you're just not getting the riff. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm editing with sort of a uh, kind of C plus science student mentality. <laughs> News to me. Um, but we did something pretty cool with the David Chalmers episode, we put an unedited version of the whole conversation, which was like two hours long, on the Next Big Idea app. And this is something we do, by the way, like we give app users ad-free early access to the show, we give them bonus content. And so anyway, I was able to track down the section where you asked David what he thought about Antonio's soft robotics proposal. Let's take a listen. You know, Damasio has this view that, uh, that what preceded the emergence of consciousness was feelings, and feelings required physical vulnerability, right? And so this, this sort of physical vulnerability of, of multi-celled organisms, you know, created a, a pain response, which eventually manifested in a whole kind of symphony of feelings, and then layered on top of that is consciousness, so that there was arguably a substrate dependence. Having said that, Damasio was also working on creating feelings uh, type systems, you know, for computer-based mm-hmm. intelligence. So, so it, it's, it's, I've come around to the idea that, that maybe consciousness is not substrate dependent, but this is, this, this is one of the questions that, that potentially would prevent, you know, full uh, emergence of consciousness in simulations. Yeah, actually, Antonio Damasio and I had a debate about this about maybe four or five years ago in New York City. It's just come out in a book of debates called Great Minds Don't Think Alike. Oh, wonderful. And yeah, one of the topics that we uh, were arguing about was to what extent is biology essential for uh, for consciousness? And yeah, my understanding of Antonio's position is that uh, he does think at some level you've got to have something like human biology for uh, for consciousness. Whereas my line is the biology is not essential. What's essential rather is, you know, the way that everything is hooked up to everything else and the patterns of information processing and so on. So one way this comes out is via a thought experiment where we gradually replace the neurons in the human brain by silicon chips, say, so that first just replace 5% of the brain, 10% of the brain, but eventually 50%. And eventually 
end up with a uh, with a silicon brain that functions just like the original human brain. And then the question is, will it be conscious or will consciousness disappear somewhere along the way in that process? And I've always argued that if there's consciousness at the beginning, there'll be consciousness at the end. There's nothing absolutely special about biology. And the alternative is a kind of bio-chauvinism where the biology somehow has has magic powers. I've never quite seen why, how and why it would be that biology would have powers here that say silicon would not. But I think at least at that point, Antonio was going the other way, although you say now he's trying to simulate feelings on a chip. Yes, he's working with a student on that as a project, which is interesting. I don't know, his, 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 his view may have evolved. On the subject of the evolution of, of views, uh, Dave, you, you are most famous, perhaps, for having uh, posited the hard problem of consciousness, uh, right? Which, which, which effectively stated that the emergence of an experience of what it is like to be conscious it is a kind of miraculous development that's very hard to, to wrap your head around or to explain. And it seems the way that you're now speaking of, of, of sort of su- substrate independence of, of consciousness, that your view of this problem may have softened over the years. Is that, is that the case, or, or you feel this is a different question? I don't know if it's changed that much. Yeah, I mean, there is this basic phenomenon of consciousness that stares us all in the face. We are conscious beings, that is, we have the subjective experience of perception, of feeling, of action. There's something it's like to be us. And this is a very deeply mysterious fact. How is it that a physical system like a brain should have subjective experience? Why does hooking up 86 billion neurons in the right patterns somehow give you the experience of consciousness? So that's the that's what I call the hard problem of consciousness. How is it that, uh, how and why is it that physical processes in the brain should give you a conscious experience at all. Why is there consciousness in the world? But at the same time, I think, I don't see why there's a difference between, say, biology and silicon processes here. I think the hard problem arises equally for both. Yeah, it's very, it would be very mysterious and surprising that silicon processes could give you consciousness. But it's also very mysterious and surprising that biological processes give you consciousness. I don't see any special reason why the biology should be crucial. And I guess over the years, it's come to seem to me that consciousness is most directly tied not to the specific substrate, but to patterns of information processing. So the, when you get information processed in a certain way, then you get consciousness like that. I mean, we still have the hard problem of why that happens. Nobody understands that. So to that extent, we should all have some humility here. But if it is the information processing that matters, then to me, it doesn't make a essential difference, whether that happens in biology, in silicon, or in some other substrate. That gives you some sense of how far-reaching the unedited version of our conversation was. I really enjoyed that one. If you want to hear the whole conversation, all you have to do is download the Next Big Idea app and join the club. And hearing that again, Rufus, reminded me that I tried to get you to say, this is far out, man, in the intro to that episode, but you smartly passed on that on that idea yes caleb writes the intros to our shows and he has gotten me to say all sorts of embarrassing things but i've got to draw the line caleb at the cheech and chong impressions 
but that was a head spinner of a conversation reminiscent of some late nights in college. You got to love those college late nights. You know, wait, before we get off into sort of a, a Cheech and Chong rabbit hole, I want to come back to something David Chalmers just said at the end of that clip. You know, he makes the point that if consciousness is the byproduct of how a physical system processes information, then it shouldn't matter whether that physical system is biological, like a brain, or silicon, like a computer chip, right? And that argument feels in line to me with the general thesis of David's new book, Reality Plus, which is what we had him on the show to talk about. In that book, he makes this slightly terrifying, but also slightly exhilarating claim, right? That within a century, he thinks we're going to have virtual reality that's indistinguishable from the non-virtual world. And that that virtual reality isn't going to be an illusion or a fiction. It's going to be genuine. Pretty cool. <laughs> uh, not Some people find this terrifying, but a virtual world is genuine reality, Chalmers would posit, just like a sentient computer is genuinely conscious. And my favorite detail, Chalmers thinks these virtual worlds will be better than our current experience in many cases. We will choose to be there because it will be a compelling, powerfully human experience and a social experience. And David's conviction that virtual reality is genuine reality has led him to wonder, well, okay, if that's true, how do we know that we aren't already living in virtual reality, right? How do we know we aren't in a simulation right now? And he's concluded that the probability of that being true is 25%. Right? <laughs> Which right? is totally nuts. <laughs> Oddly precise. 25% <laughs> probability you're living in a simulation, Caleb. Well, you know, I said earlier I was not a good science student and I wasn't a good math student either. And he does, he kind of walks through the calculation of how he arrived at 25%, but it was yeah. too confusing for me. So I left that off too. <laughs> well, of course, if you think there's a reasonable chance that we are living in a simulation, then you start wondering who's running that simulation. Yeah, you two actually spoke about that a little bit. And for a fairly existential topic, it was pretty funny. So let's take a listen. Well, and you say that simulators may be particularly interested in sims who suspect that they are living in a simulation, which means you, David Chalmers, are much more likely to be simulated than my mother, who who is not at all concerned that we're living in a simulation. <laughs> Any listener listening to this right now, you know, this is, a, this is maybe some sign that you're in it. Is it just coincidence you happen to find yourself listening to uh, this podcast about a simulation right now? It's much more likely. Maybe the simulators are really interested in trying to figure out whether humanity will figure out that we're in a simulation. So it's constantly simulating people going through this process. So yeah, just listening to this podcast has made it more likely that you're in a simulation. And if that worries you, think, think, think about what it means for me, who just spent five years <laughs> writing a book about it. <laughs> well, then there's the concern that if you find decisive evidence that we are simulated, they might delete you because it, it might make the experiment less interesting, right? If you, you know, I, I like the argument that we need to live really interesting lives to avoid being deleted. The philosopher Hegel said that the point of the universe is to become conscious of its own nature. And once we become, the universe becomes conscious of its own nature, mm. then that's the end of history. So the simulation version of this is like, yeah, the, the simulators set up the universe in order to see when we would actually realize that we're in a simulation. The moment we realize that, at that point, the universe is conscious of its own nature. 
Um, and at that point, that's the end of history. So maybe at that point, they shut down the simulation or they maybe they upload us from the simulation to the next stage of history. Interesting. Well, I'm hopeful that when, you know, when people hypothesize that if they're trying to save on computer power, they might just sort of, you know, delete less interesting sims. That uh, even if they run, even if they run us really slowly, that'd be okay. Like, uh, <laughs> simulators, if you're out there, please upload all of us so we get some life after death. You can put us on a slow computer; it's all right. We'll still, <laughs> we'll old, still get to experience it. The, the old, the old, the old jalopy in the corner. Far out, man. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll leave the techno future behind and travel to the ancient past. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. Just before the break, David Chalmers said that according to the philosopher Hegel, when the world becomes conscious of its own nature, that will be the end of history. Well, Mr. Hegel, here's a question for you. When was the beginning of history? or more specifically, the beginning of human history? And that's a question we've had a lot of fun exploring over the past 12 months. And perhaps the most outlandish explanation came from philosopher Edward Slingerlin. The idea that at core, it was fundamentally our desire to party together, right? To have these like beautiful, rapturous, collective experiences, that this was the catalyst that drove agriculture, cities, civilizations. I mean, it, it's really a pretty dramatic rewriting of where we come from. Yeah, and it was surprising to me that this wasn't more widely known. It wasn't known to me before I started doing research for the book. So I already had a sense that you know, alcohol was playing this important role in, in helping us adapt to civilization and helping us be more successful as cultures. But when I started reading the archaeological literature, I was like, wow, it's actually, you know, quite literally gave rise to civilization, if this is true. This is totally wild. Edward is saying that alcohol, our desire to brew beer and get a little tipsy, is responsible for the emergence of civilization. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors were like, th think about how much easier it would be to get drunk if we stopped having to move around all the time. For his book, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization, he looked at the anthropological and archaeological records and made two pretty amazing discoveries. First, he learned about this site in modern-day Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. When archaeologists excavated the site, Caleb, they found these enormous limestone pillars. They each weighed 15 tons, and there were 60 of them. And the archaeologists realized that these pillars had been lugged such a long distance from where they were quarried that it must have taken 500 people to get the job done. But the weird thing was that these archaeologists didn't find any evidence of habitation at Gobekli Tepe. So no houses, no livestock, no grain silos. No one lived there. 
So you can picture these archaeologists, right? They've discovered this massive site built by hunter-gatherers for no discernible purpose. But then they started noticing shards of broken cups. They found stone basins that could hold nearly 40 gallons of liquid. And a light bulb went off. Those vats were used to brew beer. Caleb, I'm getting goosebumps right now as I say this. 11,000 years ago, Gobekli Tepe was the site of the world's first ever keg party. So that was the first amazing thing that Edward alleges. The second thing was that the earliest crops humans domesticated weren't good for eating, they were good for fermenting. So basically, he thinks we started living together in agricultural communities for the simple reason that it made it easier to tie one on. It was both a a motivation to settle down, and then once we did settle down, it was a tool for helping us cope with that. Because the transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to early agricultural lifestyle must have been a shock. You know, it's hunter-gatherers live pretty kind of cognitively diverse lifestyles. They're relatively egalitarian. They're wandering around a lot. And then you're moving into a, a, let's say, a village lifestyle where you're now living in a fixed place. You're living on top of other people. You're crammed into rooms together. Your diet is impoverished. So instead of eating a variety of wild plants and things, you, you know, game, little bits of meat, um, you're eating a lot of starches now um, that that are kind of boring and not super nutritious. And there's stratification. So, you know, maybe you're at the bottom of the totem pole now and you're having to negotiate social hierarchies in a way you didn't have to before. It had to have been really stressful. And so so my argument is one function of alcohol is stress reduction. Um, and this is, you know, ancient cultures, the, the Hebrew Bible talks about role of uh, wine and taking away sorrow. And you see very similar things in early writings from Mesopotamia and China as well. It's a way the mood enhancement and stress reduction are a way for people to cope with the stresses of agricultural life. And I, I think that, you know, people in modern societies popping open a beer or pouring themselves a glass of wine at the end of the day is, is doing exactly the same thing. I sometimes joke, Rufus, that I know an episode of our show is going to be really great if after we're done recording the interview, I then go in the other room and describe the whole thing to my almost perfect girlfriend, Kirkley. Yes, you have said that. Yeah. (laughs) But I actually now realize there's an even higher level of resonance for me. And that's when an episode of the show causes me to go out and buy something. So what happened, actually just last week, we interviewed Jody Rosen about his book, Two Wheels Good. It's about the history of the bicycle. And this weekend, I went out and bought a new bike. And I kid you not, after the interview with Edward Slingerland, I went out and bought a wine fridge. No way. You never told me that. I'm not kidding. I really, I did it for sure. (laughs) Well, Edward's book definitely fits perfectly in my scientific studies that support the life I want to live anyway file. You know, and of course, we should point out that his book is not an endorsement of just reckless drinking. I think Edward would be the first to say that alcohol can have really serious physical and social consequences. But the evidence is pretty clear that alcohol definitely has some cognitive benefits, especially when it comes to creativity. And especially when we drink socially. This is my takeaway from that conversation, right, is that I have permission 
from Edward to enjoy an occasional cocktail, Caleb, drinking socially. There's a lot of research that shows that when we lower our inhibitions, we also increase our cognitive flexibility. And this reminds me of something you and Edward talked about that connects back to what Annie Murphy Paul was saying at the beginning of this episode. You know, she was talking about this idea that our thinking improves when we can debate, when we can bounce ideas off other people. And you posed a really interesting question to Edward. You said, basically, does alcohol make us more creative because it allows us to bounce ideas off of ourselves? You know, I I was talking with um, the author Stephen Johnson last night. And he's, he's written a bunch about coffee shops and bars and, and so on. And he, he also has commented to me that, his, um, that the, there's certain types of writing that he does most effectively sober, <laughs> right? But that yeah. some of his yeah. most lyrical kind of beautiful sentences and, and some of his, his most kind of counterintuitive and maybe effective metaphors, he'll generate yeah. later in the evening, you know, having had a glass of yeah. wine and... And he, we were talking about it last night, and he, he pointed out that he wrote in his book, Farsighted, about all the evidence that neurodiversity improves collective thinking. So just getting together mm-hmm. with a bunch of colleagues in the, in, the, in the bar is itself a positive for collective thinking because of the, of the neurodiversity. But he was also pointing right. out that you can have chemical neurodiversity with your own different mental states, right? So if you if you oh, that's cool. if you occupy yeah, that's a great, that's a if you point. think about the same problem in different yeah. kind of chemically induced, you know, cognitive states, you're actually introducing a kind of neurodiversity to your own perspective on, on the on the topic. That's cool. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah, I think all the best lines of my books were probably all written at some level of BAC. You know, then the editing happens on coffee, right? Yes. <laughs> During the daytime. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting way to put yeah. it. Um, you know, maybe su- successful intellectual workers are able to use different substances to create neural diversity within themselves. Now, now for, for those listeners who may be skeptical about this kind of enhancement of creativity, that uh, alcohol makes possible. I mean, we, we think there might be some broader historical evidence of this. And you cite the work of an economist named Michael Andrews who pulls data on wet and dry counties during prohibition. And yeah. I think he was able to show pretty conclusively that the number of new patents were reduced by 15% annually in counties that went from wet to dry. In the early yeah. years of prohibition, was that right? That's correct. Yeah. So that's a nice study. It's correlational, uh, but it's I, what I like about it is it's very clever. It's a, it's taking advantage of a natural experiment yeah. essentially, which is that um, we we think of American prohibition as being something that happened all at once. You know, when that 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 amendment was in, imposed, but it wasn't. It actually happened. It happened over a long period of time and was imposed at different times at the county level and then at the state level. So he took just took advantage of that natural variation to look at differences in patent applications and finds this drop-off in what seems like a drop-off in innovation when prohibition is imposed. And his view is that what's happening, you know, people didn't stop drinking. They went, you know, they turned to bootleg liquor or they, you know, made stuff at home. But what they couldn't do anymore is go to saloons and talk over alcohol. 
the damage that prohibition did to collective innovation was the elimination of collective drinking. Man, we got to get those next big idea club happy hours going again. Absolutely. You got to put that wine fridge to work, Caleb. I also want to note here that what's happened just here in that exchange is one of my favorite things that happens occasionally in conversations, which mm-hmm. is when authors you know, rethink some of their assumptions or are introduced to a new idea. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, I'm always gratified when we actually get the authors off of their script totally. and engaging with ideas they didn't see coming. Totally, totally. That's a really good example of that. So Edward's claim that booze gave us modern civilization totally floored me. But then last winter, we had an archaeologist on the show who made an even more shocking claim. He said that everything we think we know about the ancient past is wrong. Okay, so you see our current understanding of the history of humankind as a myth. And we know it's a myth because it's, it's too neat. Mm. It can be summed up in, in, just a few, <laughs> in just a few sentences. That's right. Can you share with us that, that, that myth? I, I'm tempted to ask you to do it because I've done it so many times now. And of course, if it's true, anyone should be able to do it. Here we go. We started out in tiny bands of egalitarian hunter-gatherers and then something went terribly wrong and look where we are today. And we, then we can debate the something. Was it the agricultural revolution? Was it the invention of cities? But that, that, that's basically it. I mean, as you say, it's, it's such a simple, it's what Claude Lévi-Strauss called it, like a mytheme, like a little bundle of things that <laughs> kind of sit in your head and um, you repeat them so often that, that, that you never really question them. That's David Wengro, who, along with the late David Graeber, co-authored The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. It was actually a number one bestseller last year, phenomenal book. In the book, they point out that the transition to agriculture didn't happen overnight. It took 3,000 years, and it didn't result in immediate inequality. As it happens, many early agricultural societies were highly egalitarian. They also write, and this was shocking to me, that the idea that we needed settled agriculture in order to construct cities is also a myth. He even references Gobekli Tepe, but he points out that it was actually one of several massive gathering sites constructed by hunter-gatherers. Let's hear a little bit of that conversation. You write, the world of hunter-gatherers, as it existed before the coming of agriculture, was one of bold social experiments resembling a carnival parade of political forms. I love, I love that. Uh, far more than it does the drab abstractions of evolutionary theory. So the, the reality, it was much more colorful. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, uh, the archaeological evidence of what human beings were up to before the coming of, say, rice farming in uh, East Asia, or maize growing in the Americas, um, or wheat and barley in, in Eurasia. Wherever you look, you see an incredible range uh, of uh, not just experiments, but actually things that, that we wouldn't otherwise, I mean, if there wasn't direct archaeological evidence for these things, we'd never imagine that pre-agricultural peoples were getting together in their thousands to build enormous earthworks and great monumental centers uh, like uh, Poverty Point in uh, Louisiana uh, or the great stone monuments of Gebekli Tepe in the Middle East. These are just things that, that wouldn't really occur to us, but they're there in the archaeological evidence. You know, in Ice Age Europe, you have these uh, phenomenal 
burials of individuals going back tens of thousands of years before the invention of agriculture, where people's bodies are placed in these kind of, they're almost like funerary dioramas with huge amounts of wealth and ornamentation and sophisticated, highly crafted objects and trade goods. All of this exuberance just gets flattened out in the conventional story, where we're told time and again that before the coming of agriculture, nothing much happened. In fact, what archaeology shows us today is that a huge number of different things happened, and many of those experiments will have involved uh, uh, institutions and beliefs that we generally think of as much more recent in time, including forms of private property, hierarchy, probably even slavery. For anyone who enjoyed Sapiens as much as I did, I cannot recommend David's book and our conversation enough. It actually, to me, is a really positive reflection of our society as a whole, or the world as a whole, <laughs> that a book as geeky as The Dawn of Everything was the number one New York Times bestseller. Like, I think that's fantastic. As geeky and as long, right? I mean, it's like an eight or 900 page doorstopper. Gives me hope. David also has the distinction of being the only anarchist we've ever had on the show. You know, uh, this reminds me of some of the reviews of the book I've read that refer to you and David as anarchists. And, and popular culture is not oh, especially kind to anarchists. Uh, the word conjures up piercings and tattoos. And, uh, but then I look at the author photos uh, on your book jacket, and it's two guys in, <laughs> two guys in collared shirts. Uh, so I have to ask you, are, 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 you, are you, David, What an were you anarchist? expecting? <laughs> I personally, and I, I suspect um, this, this might be a good anarchist position, it's not for me to say, but I don't like pigeonholes, I don't like pigeonholing uh -huh. people, I don't like sticking labels on people. Maybe that makes me a good anarchist, but that would be a kind of self-defeating argument, wouldn't it? <laughs> well played. Um, well, I love this question that you ask in the book. What if we treat people from the beginning as imaginative, intelligent, playful creatures who deserve to be understood as such. What a radical suggestion, huh? <laughs> what a radical suggestion. Only an anarchist could possibly conceive of anything so crazy. Okay, let's pause for a second and just acknowledge the range of ideas we've encountered so far. So we learned about the cognitive magic of conversation. We explored the origins of consciousness and we busted a few myths about the ancient past. Let's come back to the present and hear from another mythbuster. Devin Price is the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And Devin says many of us labor under the delusion that there's some sort of evil force within us that drives us to be unproductive. But instead, Devin says the impulse to be lazy is actually not a bad thing. Here's one of the examples they give of behavior that looks indolent, but could actually be good for us. So um, I had this graduate student who since graduated, Marvin, who um, is a mortician, interestingly, and he was really studying cyber loafing. So kind of screwing around online while you're technically at work and the um, psychological benefits and just the motivations for why it happens, because it's just one of those things, again, that industrial organizational psychologists bump up against where they view it as this barrier to productivity. All employees are constantly, you know, checking Facebook and online shopping. How can we keep them from doing this? And what 
Marvin really found was that, um, and the, there's some pre-existing work in the literature on this as well, uh, that cyber loafing often plays a really important gear, gear shifting function for workers. So when people are shifting between tasks or um, have just completed kind of an arduous or boring work task, that's when they tend to kind of come up for air by checking in on what their friends and family are up to, looking at, at something online, you know, scrolling through Instagram. And it's really a form of seeking novelty and social contact. Yeah. And it can actually be really beneficial. Um, or it's just inevitable. You know, there's kind of two different ways we can look at it as something that is really important and helpful psychologically, um, or just also like a basic human need we, that is value neutral that we can just accept. Um, and what Marvin found in his research specifically was that cyber loafing was really helpful to morticians working in their offices late during the pandemic, a really stressful time to be a mortician. Um, and so again, it's just one of those things we can kind of normalize and just accept instead of passing judgment against. Cyber loafing. What a wonderful word. To loaf is to lounge or saunter lazily and idly, which, of course, we all do digitally now and then. I'm sure you do, Caleb. Yes. And Devin has given us permission. The cyber loafing idea actually came up in another conversation you had this year. It was with Dr. Anna Lemke. She's a professor at Stanford Medical School and one of the world's leading experts on addiction. And Anna is actually no stranger to cyber loafing herself, though in her case, She's not just scrolling through Instagram. So, Anna, I have to ask you, who the heck is Dr. Pimple Popper? And why are you watching these videos? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't watched any of Dr. Pimple Popper's videos? Okay, now I'm really embarrassed. Um, these are videos of a dermatologist. I think she's a dermatologist, just popping people's pimples, pimples large and small. I really don't want to go into any kind of psychoanalytic uh, <laughs> <laughs> analysis of, of why they're appealing to me, but they are. I also like to watch videos of podiatrists shaving away people's calluses and corns. Again, oh my gosh. I, yeah, weird, right? <laughs> um, but <laughs> I can I can literally watch those for hours, just one after another. It's very, oh my gosh. very strange. Well, yeah. well, you're, you're, you're not alone because I actually did look it up. I had to look it up. <laughs> and, and, and your addiction's a contagion. These are not small yeah. pimples we're talking about here. And, <laughs> right. and, and you're not alone. Dr. Pimple Popper has 7.3 million subscribers. Right. Right. Um, so clearly there's, and there's a pleasure pain <laughs> threshold clearly with, with the popping of pimples. So there's more, there's more to get into there. Yeah. For a little context here, Anna didn't mention out of the blue that she's a fan of Dr. Pimple Popper. She brought it up to illustrate a point. Here's a clip for the book bite she made for the Next Big Idea Club for her most recent book, Dopamine Nation. One of the most important discoveries in the field of neuroscience in the past 100 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located. By that I mean the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And pleasure and pain work like a balance. When we feel pleasure, the balance tips one way. When we feel pain, it tips the other. One of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to stay level. After any deviation from neutrality, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. For example, I like to watch YouTube videos of American Idol. 
And when I watch, my brain releases a little bit of the neurotransmitter dopamine in my brain's reward pathway, and my balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to the increased dopamine by down-regulating my own dopamine receptors and dopamine transmission. I like to imagine this as little gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance to bring it level again. Not very scientific, I know. But here's the thing about those gremlins. They like it on the balance. So they don't hop off once it's level. They stay on until it has tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. This is the after effect, the hangover, the come down, or in my case, that moment of wanting to watch just one more video. If I wait long enough, the gremlins hop off the balance, neutrality is restored, and that feeling passes. But what if I don't wait? What if instead I watch another video, and another, and another, and pretty soon I'm no longer watching American Idol YouTube videos, I'm watching YouTube videos of people watching YouTube videos, alternating with memes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Now if I keep doing this for hours a day, days to weeks, weeks to month, I end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of my balance to fill a whole room. They're camped out for the long haul, tents and barbecues in tow. Once that happens, I've changed my joy set point. I need to keep watching YouTube videos not to feel pleasure, but just to feel normal. And as soon as I stop watching, I experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance. Anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and mental preoccupation with using, otherwise known as craving. This is the hallmark of the addicted brain. This basic situation of these gremlins you describe, mm-hmm. maintaining the pleasure pain balance or the hedonic set point. Gosh, it feels like a dire state of affairs. It's a little bit of a cruel trick, right? I mean, like yeah. we, we find a source of pleasure and it's almost immediately counterbalanced with pain. Yeah. And if you continue to tap the pleasure bar too many times, our experience of the pleasure erodes and, and we're building, as a, if I understand correctly, a kind of mounting debt of, of pain and discontent, yes. <laughs> you know, and it, it feels almost like a neurochemical explanation for our inherent discontent as a species, which, mm-hmm. which I think poets and writers and philosophers have, have known for generations that we are to some degree a discontented species and it's yeah. probably not by accident, Right. but this explains the, what's happening neurochemically. Yeah, exactly. It gives a neuroscience frame for why we are the ultimate seekers, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. And again, you know, it's what has kept us alive and really dominant as a species for so many millions of years. But it turns out to be a real bummer if you've transformed the world to one of overwhelming overabundance. Now, you know, we've got so many feel-good drugs and behaviors just at the touch of a finger um, that we've all kind of, like our whole existence is sort of fetishized now, and it's, it's really strange. Anna's book, as you, as you said in that clip, uses neuroscience to try to understand why we are, by nature, a discontented species. And another book that we loved this year that tried to answer that same question by calling on some other disciplines like psychology and philosophy was Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And it was written by our curator and just one of our favorite people, Susan Cain. Here she is describing her book's origins. 
And I should warn you, you may want to have a box of tissues handy because this clip really tugs at the heartstrings. So at first, all I really wanted to do is answer this question about what philosophers call the paradox of tragedy. You know, like, why would we engage with art forms that should make us sad? But what I started to realize is that these art forms are part of this, these centuries of wisdom traditions and artistic traditions that all contain this message to us that these states of longing that we feel for a more perfect and beautiful world than the one that we have, that is like the fundamental state of the human soul. And for some people, it's expressed religiously in explicit religious terms. And for some people, it's metaphorical. But that that is fundamentally who we are. And it's also the wellspring of our best natures. It may not always be happy, but it is one of, it's our creative wellspring and it's one of our deepest wellsprings of connection with each other. Well, and, and the, the power of that, of that connection is so beautifully demonstrated in the story that you open the book with, the cellist from Sarajevo. Can you share that story? Yeah, sure. So in, I think it was 1992, there was the, the famous siege of Sarajevo, um, in which there were literally like, it was a civil war and there were snipers on the hills of this beautiful city. Historically, this had been a city in which three different peoples, um, it was Muslims and Croats and Eastern Orthodox, had been living together in more or less harmony for quite some time. But, but then suddenly it broke out into civil war and people, like the people of the city literally couldn't leave their homes without risking their lives because there were snipers up on the hills and there were bombings and so on. And one day there was a bombing of a bakery in the middle of the city. And a man named Vedran Smilovich had been near that bombing and he took care of the wounded, helped, helped to take care of the wounded. And then he came back the next day to the scene of the bombing. And he was the lead cellist of the Sarajevo Orchestra. And he came back and he was dressed up in his concert tails, like in, in mm -hmm. a tuxedo and so on. And he, and he plopped a chair down right in, this, in the middle of all this wreckage and carnage and rubble. And he took out his cello and he played the Albinoni in G minor, which most people listening, they may not know what it is, but when, if, if they hear it, they'll recognize it. And it's just the most hauntingly beautiful music you can imagine. And people said to him, you know, how could you do this? How could you sit out and, and expose yourself to all this risk? You know, you, you're going to be shot any moment. And he said, you asked me if I'm crazy to be doing this. You should ask them, are they crazy to be bombing the city? But he plays this haunting music every day for 22 days out in the open. Wow. One day for each of the 22 people who'd been killed by the bombing. And there's something about that music and its yearning, haunting, minor key nature that expresses better than anything else could the fact that this is on the surface a city of combatants or victims of combatants but it's really a city of people aching for love. And that's what he's saying with that music.
And oh. and by the way, we are now seeing all kinds of echoes of that in Ukraine with with musicians. I, I'm guessing many of them are consciously aware of following Smilovich's example because it became so iconic. That's right. I texted you. You may have already seen it. This incredible article about this violinist in Kiev, a conservatory st student named Ilya Bondarenko, who partnered with a violinist in Los Angeles to create what they called a violin flash mob. They created a video that opens uh, with Ilya performing a Ukrainian folk song in a basement shelter in mm -hmm. Kiev. And then he's gradually joined by more and more violinists around the world. It's just so, so powerful. And it's amazing to me that that's a, a Ukrainian folk song. What I hear listening is, we are all mortal, we're all going to die. But before then, we have this time together and it's beautiful and let's connect. I mean, it's just this sort of incredibly visceral human kind of cry. Exactly, exactly. That's what that music is saying. There's something about this human impulse, as I say, to, to transform pain into beauty. And music happens to be one of the best media that we have for doing that. But that's what we're hearing in those moments, and that's what the artists are doing, whether they're, they're thinking of it consciously that way or not. It just gives me goosebumps. And I tip my hat to you, Caleb, because that was your idea to weave the music around our tape. Thank you. But, you know, that's one of the fun things about the collaborative process of making this show, which is we're always surprising each other. And... We don't do it alone, you know, by the way. We've got a team of talented sound designers who worked on all of the conversations you heard today. And we've also got all of our colleagues at the Next Big Idea Club, and they're a constant source of ideas and feedback. And this actually, this idea of collaboration sets up our last clip really well. It's from a conversation you had last summer with another one of our curators, Malcolm Gladwell. He had just published The Bomber Mafia, which was a book that he conceived of, first and foremost, as an audiobook. And you asked him about that decision, why he wanted to go straight to audio instead of print. Books like this, part of the reason they're so much fun to do, and I suspect also to listen, is that unlike a print book, which is really the product of an author, you know, with an editor guiding them along the way, this book is a team project. I mean, it's sound people, it's engineers, it's, you know, it's like people finding you all this amazing tape. I mean, it's, so it has, this other, you can feel the richness of the production. Absolutely. In the same way you do with a movie. You know, you, you understand that a movie is a group project when you watch a movie. No, this has become a theme of great interest for me recently. It's this idea that, that to some degree, all success is group success. Like even when a singular author writes a book, they're all the lives of the people who are described in the book that have made the whole story possible, right? It's always a collective success. But to some degree, the more collaborative the execution, often the better the result is, right? I mean, we see this in like television writing and other areas. And I, it does make me wonder whether this isn't the beginning of more collaborative nonfiction production. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, certainly if you just look at something like productivity, 
I don't know why it took me until I was in my 50s to realize that if I put together a team around me, I would be twice as productive. It took me a long time to put the most obvious, duh, of course, right? Like, But for whatever reason, I was resistant to that notion before. Maybe it's because writing a book doesn't really lend itself to teamwork in the same way that audio does. It's just another way in which audio is different. Well, and twice as productive, but also I think it makes the process twice as much fun, which also ends up being revealed, baked into the product, right? I mean, you can feel the fun that's being had and all the little choices, right, along the way. I hope you could feel the fun being had when you listen to this show. We have a blast making it. It's a labor of love. Thank you so much for being one of our loyal fans. Before we go, how about a quick update about what's in store for the next big idea over the next few weeks? Yeah, so this was technically our last episode of season four. And we'll be back with a new season in September. But don't worry, we're not going dark on you until then. We've got some really exciting stuff lined up for the summer. You're going to hear a bit more from Caleb. He's working on a few special episodes that I think are going to be great. Thank you. Yeah. So since summer is the season of travel, I'm going to be hosting a little mini series about books that take us on journeys. So we'll travel down thousands of miles of American rivers. We'll visit some of the world's most exclusive and climate-threatened waterfront resorts. And we'll take to the skies. We'll take a walk in our backyard. It should be a lot of fun. We're going to talk to some really fabulous authors. And we're also this summer going to be dusting off some of our favorite episodes. We're going to share a few never heard before interviews from our archives. And we may even share some tape from some other shows that we really love out in the podcast universe. So it's going to be a good summer. Amazing. I can't wait, Caleb. Our show today, as always, was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. We want to thank the entire team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network for helping us make this show. A lot of the conversations you just heard would never have happened without LinkedIn support. And speaking of LinkedIn, you should absolutely subscribe to Rufus's LinkedIn newsletter. He posts his thoughts on each week's episode. He shares fun links, behind-the-scenes stuff, some candid family snapshots. It's a lot of fun. Follow Rufus Griscom on LinkedIn and subscribe to his newsletter. It's called The Next Big Idea. The snapshots are a bit unfiltered, but I think uh, I think add to the experience. In the episode notes, you'll find links to all of the episodes we played clips from today. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, The Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. And thanks again to Dan Pink, John Colapinto, Annie Murphy-Paul, Catherine Price, Antonio Damasio, David Chalmers, Edward Slingerland, David Wingrow, Devin Price, Anna Lemke, Susan Kane, and Malcolm Gladwell. And thanks to every author who came on the show this year. What an incredible lineup of brilliant people. It was a delight to talk with all of you. This episode honestly could have been 50 times longer because every author we've interviewed has been fantastic. All right, I think we landed the plane. We did it. (laughs) We deserve a drink. Glad you bought that wine fridge, Caleb. I think I might need to get one over here. (laughs) Yeah, man, for sure.